Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Because affordable, single entry-level, single-family homes are the golden unicorn of real estate in California. It's, it's rare, and if you can find it, it's, it's very valuable. Uh, it is an endangered species out here, honestly. So, and it's what a lot of people want. It's very high demand and not enough supply. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing. Then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. It's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. My name is Viku, and you're now listening to my show, The Real Estate Lab Podcast. Hey, do you want low competition in real estate investing? Too good to be true, you may think? It's not. If you're looking for a niche or an area in real estate investing that is virtually has no competition, this is the episode for you. I'm your host, Viku, and I'm so, so excited to introduce you to my next guest for this week's episode. He is the Chair of Construction Management for the New School of Architecture and Design in San Diego. He's the President and Managing Partner of Coast to Coast Equity, Inc. He's a TV host for the Real Men of Real Estate shows on Roku, Mr. Steve Matley. Now, Steve and I talk about a niche that not many of us are aware, and it's hard to get into, hence, no competition because it's so hard to get into and not many people are aware of it. Now, he will share with us the ins and outs, some information about this niche, what it is, and how you can get in. That's the most exciting things for us, right? As real estate investors, we are always looking for a niche or an area that we can break into uh, with little or no competition. All right, without further ado, let's just dive right into today's episode with Steve Matley. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab Podcast. I have Steve Matley here with me today. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here. Let me ask you this. Let me take you back to a time before today, spring of 2015. You were at a mastermind with ABC's secret millionaire, James Malinchak. What was the biggest lessons you got from meeting James and what did you learn at that event? Um, and I don't know if that was the first, second or third one I went to. I went to several of them. In fact, uh, James is speaking at an event I'm going to be at coming up in October. Um, you know, let me tell you, let me get you a little roundabout story how I got there. I had heard of James Malinchak. But I was always one of those very skeptical of the rent out the Marriott and do the Saturday seminar sort of thing kind of thing, right? Very mm-hmm. skeptical of those. There's a gajillion gurus out there, right? Or, or pseudo gurus. Well, I ended up going, I ended up through Toastmasters meeting a guy named Craig Duswall. I don't know if you know Craig. He does the, he's the rock star uh, marketing program guy. Um, I have not heard of him. I went to his three-day thing and he had a lot of good information. And James actually spoke there. And what I learned was that that uh, Craig's mentor was James. And so I thought, okay, so what I'm seeing is the product of what James produced. 
And mm-hmm. therefore I can, I, there, that to me, that's the best testimony there is. I don't care what people say or what they record or, you know, how their, their social media is. When I go to someone's event and it's pretty good and they got solid content, and they seem like it's organized and got a strategy and a purpose behind it. I say, okay, right. someone walk this person through how this needs to go. And I found out that, that was James. So that's why I ended up going to James event. And I feel like, you know, with James, I could, it was at another level up. And one thing I'll say about James, he's, um, what do you say? He's got ideas. He can take, he can solve a problem quickly. You can throw stuff at him and he will come back with this scathingly brilliant idea that you're going, okay, why in the world did I not think of that? Because that was so obvious Stevie Wonder could have seen it, right? Mm-hmm. But it took someone like James that he could just see that and make that happen. And so that's that was my experience with James Malinchak. And what I took away from there was one, perfection is the enemy of accomplishment. If you're waiting for it to be right, it'll never happen. And I tend to be a little bit of a perfectionist. I don't want to send stuff out unless it's right and exact. And the problem is sometimes that means things don't get done. So I kind of learned, hey, throw it out there. Um, you can fix things later if you find things out. Plus, you'll get feedback from people anyways. You know, So so that was one of the biggest things. He's, he's a big uh, a proponent of get it done. You know, my, mm-hmm. my 95% good, great book is better than your hundred percent perfect book you never published. Right. Um, right. so that was, that was probably the biggest thing. And the other thing is, um, I realized that a, a fairly no nonsense business mindset, um, can be very successful in a, in a profession that requires a lot of interpersonal skills because I'm not a salesperson by by trade, I, you know, I know the people that are uh, like, you mm-hmm. know, one of my partners, Marie, she is, she's very good at that. Um, I'm more of a linear business mindset. And I always felt that kind of held me back. And what I found out was, that, hey, it doesn't. And I've been very successful, not selling, but educating people and actually getting a lot of production out of that kind of by following following that model and saying, you know, if he can do that as a, with a stockbroker's mindset, because that's what he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so stockbroker's mindset, it's, 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 that's financial analysis stuff. That's not exactly <laughs> stuff that, uh, that the life of the party's made out of. Right. But right. He does it very well. You know, he, he does it and he can, he can relate to people, um, without being something other than himself. So that's, that's good. Now for our listener, we're talking to Steve Manley. He's one of the hosts of a TV show called real men of real estate and one of the partners in Coast to Coast Equities. Now, Steve, could you share with the audience, um, your, your expertise is land entitlement. So could you share with us why is it important to talk about this topic in today's environment? Absolutely. Um, so, of course, as you know, uh, since the beginning of 2020, it's been like a game of Jumanji. Every time someone rolls the dice, <laughs> something crazy comes out of the board, right? So, <laughs> right. so it's been a lot of fun. Real estate's been consistent. The stock market has been behaving like an unruly spoiled two-year-old, you know, emotionally up, down, all over the place. Stock markets do that because they're very liquid. Anytime you can make a decision on the spur of a moment to buy or sell something, you will be subject to that kind of a thing. Real estate is not the most liquid thing out there. If I decide to sell a piece of real estate today, I would be aggressive to expect money in my hands in 30 to 60 days. Uh, that'd be aggressive. And for large real estate, uh, land projects, I do commercial real estate, you might be looking at six months, nine months, a year or longer, uh, and especially if you're doing any building on it. So mm-hmm. so that necessarily makes real estate more stable. It reacts more slowly. 
Now, the problem there is when it does react like it did in uh, 2008, 2009, when it did decide to go down, it has it creates its own momentum. It's got inertia and momentum. And that means it's really hard to turn that boat around. That's like that's like turning around an aircraft carrier going at full speed on open water. You're, you're not going to turn that thing on a dime. It's going to take a while. And so that's that's the nature of real estate. What I like about it, it's it's a little more predictable. Plus, while I've done well in stocks, real estate doesn't go anywhere. It may devalue, but it doesn't go anywhere. Company stock can actually disappear. It can actually evaporate on you. That's true. Very rare cases does real estate evaporate. Flint, Michigan, an example of a real anomaly where actually that real estate, that actually did evaporate. There's nothing. It's worthless now. It's, it's absolutely worthless. It's, it's worthless, but it's still there. It's still there, but it's worthless, right? So it might as well not be, right? So, so <laughs> that, that can happen. Um, you know, if you're in a town that has a natural resource that dries up, like the old ghost towns of the West that relied on gold, silver, copper, whatever, and then when, when the mine plays out, it's done because there's no other natural resource around, then, then you've got a problem. But in, in today's world, with uh, cyber commuting and the internet and, and so many cities being very um, you know, tech-oriented, it's a global economy, that's not very likely to happen. And so the trick is just to be in the path of growth, and that's all I've tried to do. Now, my experience actually is much more in the built environment. I have actually done construction management, um, but for the last 20 years I've been doing land. My two partners have been doing land since I was still in school. They're older and wiser than I am. So one of my one of my main criteria is try to surround yourself with people that are older and wiser than yourself. Um, as I get older, it's harder to find people that are older than harder to find more people that are older than me. It's always easy to find people wiser than me, but it, you know, trying to find people older than me is can be more of a challenge. But these two guys have been they've got fifteen to twenty years on me doing the same thing. And while I'm I'm, you know, and arguably an expert in this field. They are actually more of an expert in this field. They've been through cycles more than I have. So the real estate's been really good to me. And what the reason I picked this land is I don't have tenants. So I don't fight the tenant rights issues that are in California, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Illinois, the different states that have a lot of really strong tenants' rights issues, you know, problems. If you're a there are problems if you're a landlord. If you're a tenant, it's great. But if you're a landlord, it's really difficult to get a bad tenant out. Um right. Well, um, and they almost have like squatters rights sometimes, you know, they haven't paid for a year and you can't, you can't move them. Um, right. So there's that issue. I, I've had the rentals where I've had the trash outs when a renter leaves and I've had, I had one house, I had three and a half tons of garbage come out of a three bedroom, two bath house. And oh, I wow. completely, it wasn't a fix it to the next renter. It was a complete gut and rehab to make it livable again. Uh, these people lived in there for six months without utilities, you know? Uh, so it was just, it was just terrible. Um, I, I don't want to deal with that stuff anymore. I, the construction is my background. I have been a contractor and I've been a construction manager and I've been the VP of a builder and I've done a lot. I actually run a construction management degree program for, for college. I run both a bachelor and master's degree in that. But, is it at um, SC by chance? No, it's at uh, New School of Architecture and Design in San Diego. We're a small okay. private college. And, and my, my master's degree is actually completely online. Um, most of my faculty is actually out of Georgia Tech. So, um, anyways, we, um, I, 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 that's my my background. But I didn't want to um, have my my funds tied up in the risks that come with construction. One thing I know about construction, and while I'm, I can do it very well, it is fraught with risks. 
um, I did litigation support for several years as, as a construction management consultant for a firm. And let me tell you what, there's a lot of ways you can get sued and get claims on you with construction, even years after you're done, even when you think you're out of the woods. And so I wanted to avoid all that too. Um, so honestly, the land, the land doesn't look any different from the day we buy it to the day we sell it. We change it legally. It's a fix and flip, but we fix it legally. Right. Is what we Paper, the land is an entirely different animal than it was when we purchased it. But if you drove by it, you would have no idea anything ever happened to it. You wouldn't know it turned in. It went from a farm to 250 home sites. You wouldn't know that. Could you share with us some type or some example of the different types of land entitlement projects? Well, the, the specialty we're doing, um, the, the bread and butter is the R1. R1 is the single family uh, detached residential home. Uh, the mm -hmm. reason is, uh, well, here in California, we do that. And we do it in what's known as the inland, uh, Riverside County, because affordable single entry level single family homes are the golden unicorn of real estate in California. It's it's rare. And if you can find it, it's, it's very valuable. Uh, it is an endangered species out here, honestly. So, and it's what a lot of people want. It's very high demand and not enough supply. So because of that, it makes the values very high. And that's why we specialize in that. It's just more pop. Now, that doesn't mean we don't do other things. We we have done projects that are multifamily. We've done projects that were much more dense. We've done projects that were um, had commercial. Um, we, mm -hmm. With my partners, we've done several projects that had a commercial components to them, you know, uh, strip mall, storage area, you know, light, light commercial type stuff too. Um, but the, they say the bread and butter has been those residential and, it, and it's because that is where the demand point is. And it's one of those things, you know, if uh, the old saying we have, if a man wants a red coat, you sell him a red coat. You don't try to talk right. about something else, right? So that's what <laughs> want. And, and this, this COVID, this COVID shutdown, I created a greater demand for that. Because you think about the, you know, the, the policies, the housing and land policies of the last 25, 30 years has been get people out of the suburbs and out of the rural area and into the dense population centers because it's really driven by climate change models and projections. And it's how do we not um, create, you know, uh, develop more land base that lets put people where it's already developed. Right. So it's ADUs behind mm -hmm. all, it's high rise condos and apartments. It's those type of things, townhomes. And that's all good and well until you find out when a pandemic hits. What you do to prevent the spread of a pandemic is 180 degrees opposite of what you do to mitigate climate change, right? Climate change is right. on a crowded subway and uses mass transit. That doesn't work. As New York City and Milan found out and China found out, you don't do that if you're trying to stop a pandemic from spreading. Um, 20 people in the elevator going up to their front door in a high-rise condo building is not conducive to preventing a pandemic, but people driving by themselves in their car into their own three-car garage, into their single-family home with a yard surrounding it does. And, and so there's a there's an actual disconnect there, and you're seeing the trend with these people that move to the urban environment, and all of a sudden, they're stuck in their 650 square feet with two working adults trying to zoom into offices talking over each other. No common areas available that was supposed to mitigate that tight space. The gyms closed, the business centers closed, the Pools closed, parks closed, beaches closed, hiking trails are closed. You're stuck. You're stuck in that little tiny space that was only supposed to be where you eat, sleep, and use the bathroom. And um, and then you were going to use the common areas and the city's amenities to, to offset that. And mm -hmm. then you got maybe a kid or two trying to do virtual school too. You know, good luck with that. So a lot of people are pushing out. And then you have the the side issue of people discovered, hey, I don't have to drive to work, go to work. So for what I'm spending on my two-bedroom condo in the city, I can go buy a four-bedroom house 
outside in the suburb and I don't need to commute or maybe I come in once a week or something like that. And it's a different world. So the demand for what we are, the, with the land we're providing, the demand for the product that goes on that land is increasing. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Steve, I just want to take a step back to clarify something. When you meant, when, when you said R1 are kind of like the bread and butter of the projects that you do, do you mean um, taking a big piece of land and just zone out a bunch of R1s to sell or you're taking a uh, an R1 lot and then you convert it into R2 or high residential no, no we're buying we're buying land that's generally zoned as agriculture or rural residential so most I of what see. we buy is is actually agriculture that's been abandoned uh so for example i've got a project that's 50 some odd acres in riverside county it was a turkey ranch turkeys left there 15 years ago um mm. it's, been, it's just empty fallow land right now so we're not kicking farmers out or any of that kind of stuff we're taking land that is just sitting there growing weeds and we are um taking it from the the agricultural zoning and turning it to R1 zoning. And so where this, and this particular land is three contiguous agricultural parcels, each parcel can have two dwelling units on it. Well, it's six homes. When we're done, the, the, the map we have submitted is 260 homes mm-hmm. in the affordable market, okay? Three different product types. Um, that, that dramatically increases the value of the land. Um, so I, 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 when, when I try to explain this to investors and people, what you know, how we do this, I say, look, think about a fix and flip of a house. You mm-hmm. buy a house and it's a, it's a two bedroom, one bath house and you do your fix on it. You go do your rehab. And when you're done rehabbing, you have a 100 unit condo building. Is the value going to be any different? Massive, exponentially. It's not just a little right. pop because you improved it. You have exponentially increased because you've changed the, the dynamic of the property. And that's what we've done. Um, you change the, the use of the land to kind of bring out the yeah. So instead of 250 homes, I've got another piece right now. It's it's uh, 30. It's 47 acres. Um, we're going to get 225 homes on it. It's one parcel. You can have two homes on it right now. Oh wow! Now, could you share with us some key indicators of land, whether the location or regulation or the piece of land itself that you will look for when you decide to buy it or not? Well, you know, the old saying in real estate, it's location, location, location. Only when most people, when they say that, they mean, I got an ocean view. Um, it's got a great school district. They're shopping nearby, right? For us, maybe. But for really for us, it's agency having jurisdiction. And agency having jurisdiction, AHJ, just means who is the city or the county that is going to provide the approvals and approve the maps? So that they're the permitting authority. And they both do those zoning approvals, and they also do the building and safety approvals for the person who's going to build out on it. And those jurisdictions, while they're all in California subject to the the, the, the MAP Act, um, the Subdivision MAP Act, the, how they approach that is very different. And, of course, in California, we have something called CEQA. I'm not familiar with that. No. Uh, CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act. It is that It is the law that requires people wanting to do things with their land to get approval from their local community and their neighbors first in order to make sure it's compatible. And there's good reasons for it. We don't want somebody, you know, building a noisy distribution center or factory next to the nursing home. We don't want somebody putting their strip bar next to the elementary school, right? We don't want those things, you know, or the cannabis dispensary or something, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean those things can't be in your community. It just means not there are certain places they belong and certain places they don't. We also don't want to go into the quiet residential neighborhood and um, you know build an auto shop in the middle of it. You know, that that's that's gonna be noisy and congested. That's not where it fits. It belongs in the commercial district. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the zoning is. And then CEQA also uh, looks at things like 
biological issues, uh, habitat, species, endangered species, those kind of things, cultural issues. Are there uh, old burial grounds or a frontier home or something like that that was there? Uh, historical type things that are there. Mm -hmm. um, things that are that are unique to a specific culture that may have settled in an area or something. Um, it looks at noise, it looks at traffic, it looks at dust control, water quality, all those things. And so that's, that's what CEQA is doing. And so some cities that they're very, very pro-growth, and they like the growth. They make that an easy, an easy path. They hit. They make sure they comply with everything. They make sure they're doing things right. But they can make it a quick path. Cities that really don't want growth, they really, they try to inhibit it. They can make that an arduous minefield that's just impossible to get through. You can also have not just the cities, but the actual neighbors that decide we don't care what the city says. We're not going to let this happen. And there's lawsuits that come in, injunctions, and those things. And so the agency having jurisdiction where it's located is the number one thing. The number one thing is a city that actually wants to see development happen. Why? Because it generates revenue. It creates jobs. It creates tax revenue. It creates developer fees. Those go to streets and curbs and parks and, and schools and all those kind of things. Okay. Uh, but developed cities sometimes don't need that because they have plenty of that. And they just don't want the traffic and the extra crowds. The, um, so that's number one. So location. Secondly, utilities. Where are the utilities? Do we have to chase a sewer three miles down the street? We don't want to do that. But if there's a sewer that goes to the property or past the property, we can tie into it. Perfect. That's what we'd like. Are there power lines nearby? Um, gas, uh, communications lines. Um, so those things, you, where the utilities are and how close they are to the site. And, and make sure it's the site's not landlocked, meaning we don't want to have to go negotiate a three-quarter mile easement through someone's property, provide a roadway to access ours. We want ours to be on a street, on, a, on an accessible road, preferably. Mm -hmm. And so, so those are key issues. And then the next step is topography. You know, when you go into the coastal counties, um, a lot of times what's left that hasn't been built is all vertical, right? It's all those hills in California. And that's a really expensive way to build because now you've got a lot of grading and retaining walls and drainage and flood control and all this kind of stuff that comes up and, and deepened foundations and all these things you got to do. Um, if you're dealing on flat land, and again, it could, we don't want it so flat and so low that it's in a floodplain where you got to bring 10 feet of hill dirt in either. So we're looking at those kind of things. We're looking at uh, topography as far as uh, is there a bunch of rocks out there. You know, we got to blast things out of there or get heavy equipment to move the, you know, 20 ton boulders out of the way and that kind of stuff. We, that's, that's hard. So we want to look at all those little things to make it as easy as possible for the builder who's going to come in and work this area. And then we mm -hmm. have to look at what's the market in the area. Does any, would anybody want to buy a home here? I can find really inexpensive, easy to build on land out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Nobody's buying that. That you know, you get to where it's a three-hour commute to somewhere, forget it, and it's miserable weather out there. So that's not going to happen. There's no jobs. So we need to be as close as we can to the job bases, schools, shopping, and and for the markets we're in, the affordable markets, people understand there's a little level of inconvenience in there. You will have a grocery store. And you may have something like, you know, a drugstore and maybe something like a Walmart or something, but you're not, you may not have a Best Buy. You may not have, you're not going to have a Nordstrom's. You're not going to have a, a Macy's. You're not going to have those kind of things. Those happen more developed cities. You may not have a car lot in your town. You may have to go to the next town over for that. Um, but the basic stuff is there. And so they understand there's some level of inconvenience and they just plan on that. You know, they have, they know they're going to drive 40 minutes to go to the Costco once a month when they stock up because Costco mm -hmm. needs a bigger population to, to build there. Um, so so that's kind of the trade-off. And then, of course, is there job base around there? You know, 20 years ago, when we started working in the inland, most people were there buying their homes with commuting time. They couldn't afford the coast. 
So they went out to the inland and they paid for their house by driving 90 minutes each way to work to Orange County, LA or San Diego. Now, mm-hmm. 45% of all industrial construction in Southern California is in Riverside and San Bernardino counties. It's those fulfillment centers, logistics centers, distribution places. And, and those are good paying jobs that are 15 to 20 minutes from these houses. So that's a, it's, it's, it's changed. So that's kind of, that's our basic criteria on that. And mm-hmm. of course, ultimately, can we afford to do it and make money at it? <laughs> now, besides those things that you uh, just talked about, what other things uh, w- that you will look at when it comes to due diligence um, before you're getting into a project, like a survey, phase one, phase two, environmental, soil analysis, vegetation, inspection, well test, that, those kind of things? What do you look for? Well, again, because we're we insist on having utilities, we don't need things like well tests or percolation <laughs> tests. But those are those are when you have to provide your own water supply or uh, you do septic systems. So we avoid those. Um, so we will. So so that goes away by knowing that there's utilities there. Um, mm-hmm. And that is a good point to bring up because some people will develop in areas and not realize how big a how big an issue that can be if you don't have uh, if you develop your own water supply and that kind of stuff. There's a whole big thing there and, and septic systems. So uh, that's one. But the basic, we start with always a title report. Mm. Who owns this land and who has claims and who has encumbrances and where are the easements on this thing? Who has rights to part of the land that are in perpetuity? For example, we have a piece right now that's got a wide swath of easement that's owned by the Metropolitan Water District and the EMWD. Why? Well, it's an aqueduct up there. So what do we do with it? Well, we can't build on top of it. So that becomes a linear park. Um, so it's an amenity now for the neighborhood, a nice big a park that run, goes right through the middle, diagonally through the property um, that's partially active and part, partially passive. But anytime the district needs to, they can go close off that part of the park and dig a hole and get down to their aqueduct and do whatever service they have to and patch it up when they're done. Um, so there's there's the title report. Um, and title is huge. Get a good title company. Always, always, always get one of the title companies that actually underwrites their own title, not one that just provides a, a parcel out service. And there's a few. Get one with the um, altar policy yes 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 okay and then uh second then besides title you have to do your basic soils uh what's the dirt look like is there contaminated soil in there that we don't know about even if there wasn't something like a gas station or something like that at one time there could be a level of pesticides that was dumped out there if it was farm uh you don't know Mm -hmm. or they may have had a machine shop where they changed the oil in their tractors and just dumped it into the ground over many decades because there was a time not too long ago when people didn't know any better they didn't think that was a problem we, we didn't know what that did. So that has to be mitigated then, right? Um, and then um, then you do your environmental site assessment. So your environmental site assessment, you're looking at the history of the property, what were its uses. That's where they get into the, the, the 30,000 foot elevation view of the biology, paleontology, cultural issues, historical issues, um, you know, all those things that, that come up, the, the noise, the traffic, the, you know, everything that comes up. And then you want to do a market study. We would market study again is what product would we put on here that people actually would be willing to buy and will they sell? Because if mm. they're not, there's no sense in doing this. There's nobody going to buy this to build homes on it. If nobody wants to build homes, right? nobody wants to buy them. So, so we do that. And what's the value of them? And then we look at, okay, if that's the, if this, the demand for these type of homes at this price right now, let's back out all the cost of the builder to do it. And then what can they afford to spend on the land? And then for that, what does it cost us to entitle it? And what can we afford to spend on the land? Mm-hmm. And all this happens. Uh, generally, we try to get 120-day due diligence. Sometimes it's 90. 
Um, and once we get through that and we feel comfortable, we will uh, release non-refundable deposits in escrow. That's when we form our project entities and we seek out our investors. We do not put investors in a project until we've got through due diligence ever. Some do. We do not. Mm -hmm. Now, from for all of your projects that you have done so far, who usually keep the mineral rights? Well, sometimes that depends. Sometimes that is already stipulated in a title document, and that's one reason you get title. And if you look at the title report and it has things in there that you believe are going to be something that will kill the deal when you try to sell it, Mm -hmm. Then just stay away from it, no matter how well it looks like it could, could make money. Um, I did, when I had that problem was actually up in projects we did in Northern California. And the issue there was the natural gas rights. And so there were properties where outside interest had natural gas rights to properties. And so then we had to approach them and say, what does this look like? Does this mean you want a place to go sink a well sometime? Or are you going to come in and frack an angle for it? You know, if you're going to do fracking, then it doesn't matter because you're not going to be on our site. Um, mm -hmm. However, that that could be a problem PR wise when people don't buy the homes because they say, oh, well, you know, there could be fracking here someday. And I've heard that destroys the water table or whatever. Right. <laughs> so whatever right. the case is, and I'm not getting that whole argument because I don't know enough about it to weigh in on it. Um, mm -hmm. but I know it's there. And so so that's one of those we would have to, um, again, through a market study, really research that and see if that's worthwhile. So on the properties we've done, we retain all mineral rights and air rights there. Oh, air, air, um, could you talk a little bit more about air rights? What, what are those? What's it for? Air rights aren't as big a deal in suburbia as they are in the city. Um, you know, so, so, so I'll give you an example. In, in Manhattan, air rights are huge. Um, so if you go to like, I think it's 57th Street, what they call Billionaire's Row, and you look at the buildings that have been built there in the last 10 years, they are extremely tall, but extremely skinny buildings, very skinny. They are not the typical fill a full city block type of high rise, like the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building or those things. No, these are these are taking up a a basic footprint of a a one parcel on a block. Okay, which might you might be able to maybe two or three townhomes sat on there. But but the building goes up 70 some on floors. Why? Well what they did was they purchased the property, those properties for the footprint, and then they went to the adjacent properties and they purchased the air rights, which means those properties can no longer build up past where they are. They, they, they've sold their right to go up, okay? Which is, which is fine because for this building, that means they've also preserved their view corridor at that point. They can't have a high rise right up next to them anymore, right? And so mm -hmm. they will buy up the air, the air rights for buildings that are, say, within a block or two around them, all the parcels. And when they add all those up, they, they bought 50 feet from this person and 70 feet from that person and another 50 feet from this person. When all said and done, they have enough air right space that they can build a 70 or 80 story building on it. So, so the air rights is the area above your property up to a certain height level that you have rights to. Now, obviously, there's a limit to that. Otherwise, airplanes couldn't fly over houses, right? So if it was, not, it was infinite. So there's, there's a, and, and then again, that's part of the zoning. That's part of what this each agency having jurisdiction has stipulated within their zone. So, so for the properties we do, we retain uh, mineral rights and air rights uh, almost always, not always, but almost always. And even when you sell to a builder, you will still oh, retain it. We, we don't know. We will sell that off because we don't need it. Remember, our job is we're doing a fix and flip. We don't really have an interest in that. Um, so so we don't need that. And a lot of builders will shy away from a project if someone retains the mineral rights because it means it may be hard to sell those houses 
because people will say, now, wait a minute, what happens if someone comes in and wants to bulldoze my house to access these minerals? If they have the rights to it, they have the right to get everything under my house. Or are they going to dig under my house and that's going to cause a sinkhole at some point? And my house is going to fail because my house was on solid ground until they came in and dug a big hole underneath. it. And then over time and seepage and rainfall and all that kind of stuff, at some point that, that collapses. And so, so that can be a real problem because you have to disclose that when you sell it. So generally, we're not working in areas that have a lot of mineral rights issues. Honestly, most mm -hmm. of the Riverside County where we are, it's again, it's farmland. There's not there's not known deposits of uh, minerals or or that kind of stuff that's out there. Northern California, there was there was those natural gas deposits, but um, where we are, that's in not Texas, you could have oil. Yeah, there could be oil. Yeah, and Southern California you can still have oil too. But you know, the thing with oil in Southern California is it's almost impossible to get a permit to drill the stuff out, anyways. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> now we're talking to Steve Matley, Coast to Coast Equities. You can reach out to him. Um, his email is smatley at coast-2coast.com. Now you don't have to write it down, it'll be in the show notes sections, or you can just give him a call, 951-809-9720. Okay, so back to land entitlement. What are some risks? and opportunities in land development? Well, I'll do the risk first. I'll do the bad news and then the good news. So, so land entitlement traditionally is kind of considered the riskiest part of the development equation. So when we look at land development, we start with acquiring the land on one side and we end with selling or using the structure that's been done on the other side. And in between, we go from acquiring the land. The next step is the entitlement. That is getting the legal permission to do what you want to do with your property, okay? Then the next step, of course, is developing infrastructure. That is putting in curbs, gutters, streets, utilities, storm drains, whatever. If you're doing this on a city urban lot and it's a rebuild, the utilities are already there. Um, that's really more a matter of getting demolition permits and those kinds of things, okay? But where we are, we actually have to put the infrastructure in. We have, we're, the builders will, they'll have to put in, and they, they have to build a neighborhood before they build the homes on it. And, and so that's the next step. That's developing the infrastructure. Then the step after that is building the actual homes. And that's where the builder puts a model complex up and then starts building phase by phase by phase and sells them off. Then the next step is selling those homes. Okay, now if you're, if you're a property management company, instead of selling what you've built, you rent or lease it and you manage it and you're making the, uh, the cash flow on that. So a, a different model, right? Either way, mm -hmm. that's, you know, so then you either sell it or you manage that process. Okay. And so that's the whole the whole process. We're doing just the entitlement. And traditionally, that's considered the riskiest piece, but also the most lucrative piece. So we have to look at how do we maintain as much of the upside to this while mitigating as much of the downside. The biggest risk comes from that agency having jurisdiction issue. That's the single biggest risk. If you are trying to, if I'm trying to do projects here, let's say in San Diego County, I live in downtown San Diego. So if I live, if, I, if I'm trying to do a project here in the city, I'm not going to get my entitlements in six months, nine months, a year. I'm going to get my entitlements probably um, if, if I'm actually trying to change the zoning and everything. I five years, seven years. If I'm near wow, the that long, if I'm near the water, it could take ten or twelve years because the coastal commission is getting involved. There's going to be challenges. There's all everybody's got a say in this thing, right? I got marine biology issues and have to get all this stuff, right? So the closer you get to the water, the tougher it gets. And the closer you get to the populated cities, the tougher it gets. The more chance you have neighbors that aren't going to want what you want to do. 
right? Than, than people that live there. When you're out in the in the in the in the in the alfalfa fields and you're developing, most people out there, not only do they not care what you're doing, they, they don't object at all. They actually are in favor of it because they know if somebody builds on that site, they're finally going to add two more lanes to this road, and I'm not going to have that bottleneck because they're you know they'll, they'll put a street light in. I'm not going to stuck at the street sign every day that backs up. They'll put a signal in here, right? Yeah. So right. so we understand that in the city. The city, the developers need the city more than the cities need the developers. And, and where we go, those towns tend to, um, we're kind of doing them a little bit of a favor. Obviously, they're doing us a favor by allowing us to be in their community. We appreciate that. But at the same time, we're helping to improve the community greatly by just our project. Or each project has a big significant impact on it because of the developer fees that we provide. So so that's the biggest downside. Now, other downsides, would be, so that means you may not be able to get your approvals. If you get in property and you can't get your approvals, you sunk all this money in and your land isn't worth any more the day you sell it than the day you bought it because it's still the same land. And so you can lose money on that. Uh, second thing is um, the market can turn on you. So for people that we, when 2005, my partners and I had a little phone conversation and we decided to sell everything we had. We decided it looks like this cycle has taken gone far enough. It's got a little more life left in it, but we need to get out so we don't get stuck without a chair when the music stops. You know, you don't pay because again, land's not very liquid. You have to plan ahead and you have to project a little bit. So you, you ultimately did it three years out. Well, it probably a little, probably two really, because really where we were in the inland, the bottom dropped out uh, end of 06, beginning of 2007. Uh, matter of fact, I had a rental house in one of the cities that we were doing developments in. And that was the last rental property I sold. It closed in January of 2007. And it was the last standard sale in that city for the next three years. So. I, I escaped, you know, unscathed on that one. But <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of people said we were kind of pessimistic. And I remember being on a phone conversation with a friend of mine who was a home builder in uh, June or July of 2006. And he wanted to buy land. He said, hey, you got all the land. I want to I want to expand it. He was building spec homes. He wanted to build like a small track. And I said, you know, honestly, I wouldn't do that right now. As your, you know, as, as a business person, I want to sell you the land at top dollar. <laughs> but as a friend, I kind of want to tell you, I don't think that's a good idea. I really don't want to sell it to you, you know. And he got a little bit miffed at me. He said, oh, he means I'm negative. He ended up buying from someone else. Well, when I talked to him two and a half years later, he was bankrupt, divorced, and living in someone's garage. Okay, because, you know, everything came down. He got stuck. And so that's the danger is you get into this project, and before you can sell it, the entire housing market implodes and turns down. And now nobody wants to buy your land because nobody's going to buy a house if they build it there anyway. So why would a builder buy your land and build on it? Everybody escapes. Now, that was a downturn caused specifically by real estate lending practices. It was, okay, so funding practices create recessions to a large degree, not real estate itself. If real estate's left to run, to run its own course in the free market, it'll kind of correct itself here and there. But when you prop it up through bad policy and you give people loans that have no business getting loans, you know, when the local Walmart reader has three rental homes based on stated income, you know there's a problem, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. When you get school teacher, your 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 person who cuts your hair, okay, and um, and the um, I don't know the local cupcake baker all quit their jobs to become real estate agents. Yeah, it's time to, it's time to reconsider some things, right? Right. Or in my in my mentor's case, um, he had a stripper tenant, and she moved out of his uh, of his rental unit into a three hundred and fifty thousand dollars house. Tips are good. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, but it's cash based, so I'm, I'm, I don't know what she claim on her 
You can't. Income. Yeah. Because because if you're if you're claiming that in order to be taken seriously by a lender, that also means you're paying taxes on it, and you know they're not doing that. So, mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the thing because there was a lot of the you know the um, independent uh, landscapers and you know service providers and those kind of people. You're going okay. I know you're working on the table, so how'd you qualify? And so, so that was a big red flag. That's a lot. That was some of the issues that we um, considered in 2000, beginning of 2005, when we decided to sell everything. So there's a risk there. Um, that's the other risk that can come up. Um, again, you can get waylaid in a council meeting because of the neighbors. Um, you can go, you can go into a council meeting. Everything's fine, and you've got the green light. And all of a sudden, here comes this group of people because a few there's a few that are opposed to it, and they rile up the troops. And now you're met at the council meeting with the boiling tar and the pitchforks and the flaming torches, and you're going, "Oof, this is going to be a rough one," you know. And yeah. and so a lot of times those uh, public um, boards will capitulate because again they're they serve at the whim of their constituents, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, we we had one where a city actually violated their own general plan to appease an angry crowd. Mm-hmm. So we still got out of that project. We didn't get out with near as much as we should have, but we managed to get out of it. Um, but we've never worked in that jurisdiction again. Once a jurisdiction no. goes under the bus, they're dead to us. So. Right. And since we are talking about risk, and you mentioned a little bit about uh, your history back in 2005 and six when you got out of it, I'm curious, what's your impression is about today's market? Well, of course, it's a it's an ever changing thing. Like I say, it's like the Jumanji game. You don't know what's coming out of the board next. But again, what we've seen this year, first of all, I have a book I saw. I picked up a book. Uh, was it yesterday that I saw? And it was about the um, how to navigate the deflating economy from 2014 to 2019. Now, I don't know about you, but I thought from 2014, 2019, the economy did pretty doggone well, especially right. from, say, you know, it, it did well during that time. And then it skyrocketed between 2016 and 2019. Right. Right. And at last year, I've heard, I heard there's a guy that goes to the real estate investor clubs and he's been preaching the same doom and gloom presentation for three straight years. And I know he's been doing it longer than that, that I've seen with the same graphs he's been using for 20 years, but he changes, you know change the dates on but and, and it's the, the whole thing of um you know if you say if you say it's going to turn down every year eventually you're going to be right and you're going to say i have the guy that predicted it right so come on you know but <laughs> but every it kept going up and i remember talking to people that had turned down they listened to him and they didn't go into my projects i told them say hey you just realized it didn't have to be my project you could have bought a fix and flip you could have bought something to rent you could have done anything you know just bought something to sit on it and hold and and then sold it over with appreciation um, and you just lost, you know, a really healthy return, you know, mm-hmm. potentially 20, 25% return on that for not doing anything other than buying and selling by listening to people like that. Next time, why don't you ask how much money he's putting into real estate or how much he's taking out? Because he's not, he's not investing at all. He's just talking, right? So anyways, there's that. But um, remember last year, they were also talking about it's going to go down. It's going to go down in the fall and didn't went up. And they said, well, holiday season, it's going to drop. It didn't. It went up in January. Well, it's got to come down now. It didn't. It went up. It kept going up. What made it go down? And it didn't go down. It just plateaued. Was this COVID break uh, shutdown? But here's the crazy thing. In Southern California, prices went up. Now the high end prices came down a little bit on the high end real estate, but the average real estate out there, the, the values actually went up a little bit, and and the demand, you know, transactions halted, resale transactions. New home transactions kept moving. Uh, new home transactions mm-hmm. kept going because when you buy a new home, 
you don't need to go to an open house in somebody's occupied house. You don't need to walk through where somebody lives. You don't need the home inspector and the appraiser coming through where someone lives. Those are just right. construction projects. So you put your mask on and, and your gloves and you walk through it and do your walkthrough. And then everything's handled in-house by the builder who kind of has their own title, escrow funding, and all that kind of stuff that they can do mm -hmm. remotely. You know, you don't need to go meet with a notary or that kind of stuff. So with that being the case, that they actually stayed pretty busy. Um, there was a there was a little bit of a slowdown because of people that of uncertainty. Anytime there's fear and uncertainty, people hoard cash and don't make major decisions. And so there are the people that um, maybe maybe they had a down payment that disappeared when the stock market dropped. And so they, you know, they wanted that to come back. So they have their down payment again, but, and it did. And then it went down again. It'll come back again. That stock market's just all over the place. And then um, it may not go back to where it was immediately because it was overpriced when it went down in the first place. And then um, you've got the people that maybe had a down payment saved up, but then they ended up living on that because one or more of, of two of them got laid off, you know, from their job. So maybe right. one kept the job, the other didn't. And so they figured, you know what, we don't know what's going to happen with their job. We're going to, keep this or maybe we have to live on some of this to make up the difference right now. So you had those situations, but all I see that doing is it's putting a temporary dam over the river. And, and so downstream, it looks like it's drying up, but all it's doing is building up pressure on the high side. And when you release that, you're going to get a flood. And, and we're seeing that we're seeing that um, the transaction rates have gone up dramatically since things started opening up again. Uh, demand. So demand was still there. Um, it's not, probably at the level it was, but remember we had a historically short supply too. When you have a very short supply, you have a lot of room for demand to shrink and still be in a situation where uh, demand outpaces supply. And we're still mm -hmm. there. You know, in San Diego County where I live, uh, they're running about 40,000 units short a year. You know, that's a lot of housing. And it's hard to get done. So so I see, I see the uh, market for the single family home. Like I said, the COVID thing, is pushing more people out to the suburbs anyways. Um, there was an article I read about two weeks ago that just talked about how the office sector, offices are shutting down in the city and moving out to the suburbs because they've learned they don't, they, don't, they don't need to be in the city. They can, you know, people with cyber community, they can do with less staff on site, they can get it more affordable and they can get closer to where the executives live. Right, that's true. Now with everything you've, you've said so far, I'm so on, on this land, entitlement thing. So how do we start? How do we get started? Well, here's, so, so there's three, that's kind of, I, I, I just talk, I do like three levels of real estate. We all know the basic level, buy a house and fix it and sell it, buy a house and rent it out to somebody else, buy a house, live in it for long enough and sell it for the appreciation, right? That's basic real estate stuff. We know those things, um, the fix and flips. Mm -hmm. And then there's another level up. Okay, let's do that with a duplex or a threeplex or a fourplex. Okay, let's do that with a light commercial. Maybe you buy an office condo. You know, we don't build anything out. We just buy an office condo and then we lease that out to someone. Um, maybe um, you know, we 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 get involved in um, in in small little investment groups that together we're buying um, two or three or four homes in an LLC and fixing them. So we, we we ramp it up. The risk goes up a little bit. The reward goes up. More. Then there's the level, the next level up that most people cannot access. Uh, this is the realm of the public builders, the major developers, the, all the big names you've ever heard of. And, and you know, it's the Donald Trump kind of people, right? And so, yeah. okay, he, that's what he was, right? He was, he was a developer before he was a politician, right? Correct. Did fairly well out of anything. So um, 
that is something most of us don't get into because we don't have a few hundred million dollars sitting in our mattress or in our bank account, right? I mean, it's just not normal for most people to have that. So we can't <laughs> touch that. And so the kind of work we're doing is in that realm. We're doing the stuff that the, that KB Home Lenard, DR Horton, uh, McMillan, Irvine Company, um, those kind of companies do that work, right? So what we do is make it accessible to just the normal person, to just the person that's out there. Um, not not the big mogul. And so that's why we only do the entitlement side because to do the infrastructure construction takes considerably more capital. It's very expensive and it really increases the risk. So we just do the entitlements because that one, we have a structure of our projects where investors can come in with as little as $25,000. Now, most people, if they want to buy a fix and flip, they're going to come out of pocket with more than that to do a down payment, whether they do it themselves or they get it from a hard money lender or whatever they do take it from their self-directed IRA or something. And then they're going to have to get another loan for the rehab, right? And and all that, and all and that's down payment. And they got a mortgage and all this other kind of stuff they got to do to it. Plus, they got all this work to do. And and they're, they're kind of throwing the dice. And they're going to be dancing in the streets if they can get 8%, 10% back on it. That's a great return. And it's not. And, and um, actually, Steve, let, let me just remind the listener real quick. So everything Steve and I are talking right now on the show is only for education purpose. Right. Now, hypothetically speaking, let's say you wanted to invest in Steve's project. You have to reach out to him personally and talk to him more uh, about a project. Can You cannot take what he's talking about right now and just assume this is the real number. That's right. I'm giving examples. Uh, this, is, this is just for illustrative purposes. And I would also uh, caution people. Don't run out and try to do this on your own if you don't know what you're doing, because it's a good way to get burned. Um, you know, this is one of those where lack of knowledge will certainly cost you. So, so the question was how to get into this. Okay, so we have, we kind of structure projects so that the normal person can get in, and then they don't need to have the expertise. The other the other obstacle besides not having the money is having the expertise. These are not simple things. Uh, there are entire master degree programs in real estate development and economics. So it can't be that simple, right? I, I, I have a master's degree I run in construction management. That's just the building component of it. So because it's so complicated, is a, you can lose money a lot more ways than you can make it if you don't know what you're doing in this business. And experience is the biggest teacher, and that can be expensive. So what you do is you align yourself with people who have already navigated that. If you're going to go hiking a trail you've never been on before, you want to bring with you someone who has been on that trail before to guide your way. After you've been down the trail a few times with them, then you can think about going on your own or leading other people down it. And I got no issue with people learning what we do by, you know, if they're in our projects and stuff, because we, what we do is a proprietary secret. It's just not very well known. Um, so, so the way to get into this, if you can find a group, us or someone else similar to it, and make sure you vet them fully before you give anybody your money, do all your full vetting, uh, make sure they're legit and look at their track history. And then they say for 25,000, they could come into our project um, or someone like us, a syndicated, it's called syndication. And then they are now by pooling money with other investors together, they create a pot of money that none of them could get on their own. And then they partner that up with people that know how to manage the project. They know how to put a project together and manage it and have a, history of success, that creates a winning formula. Having said that, there's still no guarantees because there's no guarantees in life. Now, you did ask the question earlier, what are the upside to this? And we never really got to this. So the upside is you can invest in real estate and make a good return without 
rental problems without having renter issues. You can do this without having to go to Home Depot and throwing out your back and your knees and your hips and chopping your fingers off and doing all that kind of stuff. You don't have to go sit at open houses and pray that you sell it. You don't have the risk of the COVID coming and causing a downturn while you're sitting on an expensive hard money loan that needs to get paid back and you can't get your house sold. And I know people that are stuck in that right now, okay? Um, yeah. You know, you don't have a, a rental property that all of a sudden you can't rent and it's empty, but you still owe mortgage on it. You don't have those issues, okay? What You write a check and you receive a check. So that's one upside. The other upside is, is their level of return. And like I say, where, where most real estate people, they're, they're happy, and I, I would be happy in most projects in 8 to 10%, 12%. If you can get 15%, boy, that's a banner day. I know some that have done flips and really knocked it out of the park and brought home 20 to 25% returns on that. Now, those are short-term, which, of course, means you're paying – um, ordinary income taxes on that, which really knocks, takes a lot of that away. Our mm -hmm. projects are always engineered to last at least a year. So they're long-term capital gains. Um, no matter when you come into the project in the LLC, the LLC is long-term capital gains and, and have your tax professional talk to you about that. I'm not the tax professional. So please talk to your tax accountant or your tax attorney if you want more clarification on long-term gains versus short-term gains and ordinary income and what that means for your return. But um, our, our investors in the projects we're in right now are seeing returns that range anywhere from, you know, 60 to, you know, 70 percent annualized returns um, because, that's again, IRR at 60 to 70 uh, percent. Well, that's an annualized return. OK, so that okay. means that um, so the the actual because they're over a year, that means you're. Your straight ROI is actually higher than that, but we always make them annualized because you got to be able to compare apples to apples when you're looking at investments. And you oh. don't really do anything other than write a check and then receive a check. Now, if somebody wants to look over our shoulder to see what we're doing because they're just curious about the process, I really don't care. We're not hiding anything. If someone wants to do that, um, I'm okay with that because and if they, I, I'm not afraid of them learning this and then doing it on their own because honestly, the pie is plenty big for everybody. So... And we're not doing anything secret anyways. We don't sell our system. You know, again, that's another one of those. I'm not selling my system to people. I'm actually using my system to make money in real estate. And so if you mm -hmm. have a choice between that or spending money, a lot of money. Now, it's good to educate yourself. Yes, invest in your education. But if you're spending a ton of money on learning somebody's system, which is equal to what you could have invested in real estate, you got to question that and say, why, why aren't they putting that money into the real estate instead of uh, if their system works, why aren't they making money in real estate? Why are they making money in seminars, right? So, so I question those things. It doesn't mean they're not legit. It just means I'm a cynic. And that's okay. And, <laughs> and again, I don't. We don't sell our system. That's not what we're here for. We make our money by actually making money in the real estate, and we invite people to join us. Again, having said that, um, I'm not pitching or advertising any particular project. I'm just telling you this is kind of what's out there, and there are other people besides us that do this. But know the people, and and also I'm going to say one other thing. We don't take every investor that comes. In fact, we turn a lot down. Um, as much as the investors need to vet us, we need to vet them. Not every, I will say this straight up front, not every investor is suited for these kind of projects. If you are a, if you do not like risk, if you stay awake at night wondering when your money's coming, coming back from an investment, this is not for you. These are longer term investments. And yes, there is some risk involved. Um, if you want to borrow money from your aunt or your grandmother to come into the project, you're not our investor. We're not interested in that. You need to have money to invest. If you want to cash out your 401k, no. If you want to use a self-directed IRA, that's fine because that's made for investment. But if you're kind of cashing your 401k and pay those penalties and all that kind of stuff, that's not good <laughs> financial practice at all. And we don't want to be a Well, I mean, at that, that point, okay? you might as well just roll it over to self-directed and invest. 
Yes, you can do that. Well, it, the thing is, you can do that if it's a if it's a pre if it's a four hundred one k from a previous employer. You cannot do that with an existing four hundred one k with a current employer. But some of them you can. Um... Most of them you can, and, and if you have a separate right. group, you can convert those over. Yeah, but mm-hmm. if you if you're going if your current corporate IRA that's got matching programs and all that kind of stuff and trying to pay the penalties and the interest on that to pull money out to invest, yeah, that's not a good plan. Right, don't, right, yeah. Don't do it. I got don't, you. I'll take your kid's college fund and put it on the roulette table. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> But if you if you have money to invest, and I know people that have a lot of money in self-directed IRAs or self-directed HSAs, and they're looking for places to put that to put it to work, and they're not going to need it tomorrow, and and so long term doesn't bother them, and they they want to grow it, and you can grow it fairly quickly with with these kind of projects. There there is a type of project and type of investment for each for everybody out there, and for some people, honestly, maybe the best investment for you is the old low-paying mutual fund or CD because that's where your temperament is. It is not worth, no matter how much you can make, it is never worth your peace of mind. It is never worth anxiety and ulcers. Don't do not do that. <laughs> totally. I, I, I 100% agree. Now, let could you share with us, out of all the years that you've been doing this, what's the most fatal mistake you've made so far? <laughs> the most fatal mistake was exactly as I said, getting the wrong investor in the deal. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's where if you get that one investor who is skittish and high maintenance and uh, insecure and distrusting, it will turn your life and your project into a living hell um, because they're always worried about everything. They want updates every two weeks. They panic. And and that and see what you can't afford is to have that kind of cancer grow in your project and destroy everything, right? That that's the kind of thing that causes a run on the bank, right? Those kind of things. Right. So so that is that's why we have to really vet our investors carefully to make sure they're the right people. Fortunately, the family and we call them a family. They're the family of investors that we have, and then most of them are in multiple projects with us, and many of them roll over between projects. Um, they know us, we know them. Um, they trust us, we trust them. And there, you know, we have the understanding. And so it's been many years. And, and even now when I go out and I talk to people and new investors come in, I, 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 I have to know that they fit the type of people that fit in our family of investors. Um, you know, they are, they are choosing us, but we're also choosing them because remember we're partners. They are, they are part mm-hmm. owners of our projects and we, we have to treat them as such and understand. Okay. And now they don't, they don't have management rights and they don't want those because they also don't, that means they don't get the liability either. They're not going to get sued or anything if anything goes wrong. Right. So they want that liability protection. We take that bullet, but if they want to see what we're doing, we have no problem sharing what we're doing and they can learn from us. and eventually. So they can, they can remain on the limited partner size, but if they want to learn about a business, you're welcome to show. We'll, them, show we'll say this is what we're doing now. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Mm-hmm. You know, we we've got this report done. We're doing this report. We submitted that map, and here's the process that's going on. Talk to me in a couple of weeks. I'll tell you where we are next. You know, um, that's fine. I, I got no issue with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also we also very much respect the uh, privacy of our investors, so we don't publish investor lists or any of that kind of stuff. And because we figure it's their business, what they're in is you know some of them may know each other outside of our deals and don't really know each other is in it, and that's fine. I, we we have to we were very careful to respect that. You know, money money's a very personal thing for people. Totally, totally. Now, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Steve. You've been awesome. Now, for our listeners, uh, make sure you check out Steve's shows. It's called Real Man of Real Estate. It's available on Amazon and Roku. Also, he has another show called Building Solid Foundation, and that's also available on Roku. Now, Steve, 
One last question before I let you go. What is your most favorite book to read and why? <laughs> well, there's a lot of books that I enjoy reading. Um, and I read a lot of different genres too. But I would say the book that had the biggest impact on me was a book I read my mother gave to me when I was... I would. I must have been maybe a senior, maybe the year after I graduated high school. I was in my first year of junior college. Um, I, I went to junior college because I graduated in the half of the class that makes the top half possible. So <laughs> now, ironically, I'm running a program at a college. Who knew, right? So right. that makes sense. <laughs> and it was it was a book by Zig Ziglar. It was his uh, book "See You at the Top." Now, what I liked about it was uh, some of it was original. He had his own kind of humor way, humorous way of say, taking uh, talking, but his book was really a, a a library or an anthology of all the different things he had read, from Think and Grow Rich to uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People to Acres of Diamonds. To all, and he had read all these books and knew he knew a lot of these speakers and authors. And he mm -hmm. kind of compiled all that into a cohesive book of, of just practical common sense wisdom for somebody you know, to do better in life and do better in business. So I still go back to that every once in a while because that was the book that really uh, uh, shifted my thinking and mindset. And from there on, I read, I've just been voraciously reading all kinds of stuff ever since. So It's, it's fun that you mentioned uh, Acre of Diamond because we're talking about land. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this land development thing could be your own Acre of Diamond. You know, if you want to invest in land entitlement, land development, definitely, definitely reach out to Steve and um, talk to his team. Now, now, Steve, how else could the listener uh, connect with you? And do you have any parting words for the listeners? Well, then connect with me on, on Roku on the Building Solid Foundations channel, and they can find my show and several other shows. There's one, Finest Women in Real Estate's on there, and there's a business doctor, some other good stuff on there. And then um, my website, coast-2coast.com, coast-2coast.com. They can see projects we're doing, our past histories. It's all there. And it's really, that website is actually designed for investors to vet us. That's what it's there for. It's not for SEO or any of that kind of stuff. It's just for investors to check us out. It's like it's talking, right? Mm -hmm. um, they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, just look up my name, Steve Matley. Um, I'll pop up. You'll see my uh, mug up there. And I'm happy to... to connect up with you. Just, you know, message me, let me know that you uh, found me through this podcast because I don't take everybody that messages me. So that, that, that requests it. So just let me know that you're coming through this and, and I'll, I'll, I'll accept you on there. Um, and then of course you've got my phone number that he'll be putting up and my email is smatley at coast-2coast.com. So uh, feel free to connect with me. I love talking to people. I love educating people. And if you are in the San Diego area, I'm actually speaking at, uh, actually it's virtual now. Um, Janice Bell's um, private lending masters meetup group. I'm speaking there uh, Thursday. So uh, um, virtually, I'm, I'm actually going to be talking to my land projects. You're going to learn more about it. And I have on YouTube, under my Building Solid Foundations channel, there's a whole explanation of what our projects are and how we do them. So you're welcome to check that out too. So free to talk to me. And my only words of parting words of wisdom is I always think of that disclaimer you always hear about uh, results not typical. Right? You see what <laughs> right. I'm Yeah, totally. And, and what I know about that is it's because the typical results are zero. And why are typical results zero? Because most people won't do what they learn. They'll spend a fortune and a lot of time learning and absorbing and observing and thinking and planning and visioning and all this stuff, but they don't do it. They don't ever start. And, and unfortunately, time is 
relentless. It just keeps ticking and ticking and ticking away. And then one day it's like, what happened? Or something happens like a, a COVID shutdown or something you didn't plan on and all your plans go out the window. So um, don't be typical results. Don't be a typical, normal, average person. Do something. Get out there and do it. Do your research and do your homework first. Yes, but don't don't camp on that. And it doesn't have to be perfect. Just get out there and just do something. Do something positive for yourself. Awesome. Thank you for your time, Steve. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking with you. That's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five-stars rating and review on iTunes for the Real Estate Lab podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.